Well, two Sundays ago, we covered the 70th week of Daniel chapter 9's prophecy, uh, wrapping up with end times prophecy in the bulk of Luke 21, and we saw the parallel scriptures in Matthew 24. Today, we're going to finish up chapter 21 with the parable of the fig tree and take a closer look at Israel today and Israel in prophecy. As Christians, we should have a love for Israel as they are the apple of God's eye, and they always have been. In Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, before he had children, I will make you a great nation. I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And these promises have never been rescinded. In a world that's increasingly, we see, anti-Semitic. People's comments are coming out, a lot of famous people. uh, They slip and they, they make these comments against the Jewish people. Jeremiah 37 says, the Hebrew prophet says that there's going to be a time of Jacob's trouble. There's going to be great persecution. There's going to be renewed anti-Semitism that's going to arise in the world, and we see it. Whether it was Mel Gibson's uh, slips when he got arrested, or Jimmy Carter's new book and some of the assertions that he's made, or even in some of the 06 campaigns when regarding to Joe Lieberman, uh, people slipped. They said things that were derogatory against Jewish people. UN resolutions, if you follow them, no matter what happens in the Middle East, Israel gets condemned. And also, unfortunately, we start to see it in mainstream Protestant denominationalism. Uh, These pastors, these leaders of the church, more and more are raising their voices and condemning Israel. It's really scary to see. Uh, I just think of the great apostasia that's going to come on the world, the great falling away, not only from the word of God, but from God's precepts and also the abandonment of his people. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that everything that Israel does is right. Don't misunderstand me. They are not a theocracy. They haven't been a theocracy for thousands of years. But we have to recognize, as, as Christians, Israel's right to exist, the borders he set forth in Scripture, and the fact that she will be an end times prophecy. He's not going to cast her off. So starting with verse 29... And he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you likewise, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The antecedent to this uh, portion of Scripture is what we covered in Luke 21, the bulk of Luke 21, the increasing frequency and intensity of events leading to the second coming of Christ. We covered that. Now, the fig tree. In nature, a fig tree is an indicator of warm weather or a change of seasons, as many fruit and flower-bearing trees are. In verse 31, the fig tree As the fig tree indicates the change of season, so these signs and events spoken of largely in Luke 21 are an indicator of Christ's second coming. Starting with the the post-rapture, the the rapture, the post-rapture parousia in the Greek, followed by the kingdom of God established on the earth. Now this brings us to the fig tree as Israel. In the scripture, the fig tree has been associated with or used as a metaphor for Israel in many occasions. If you're taking notes... 1 Kings chapter 4, Micah 4.4, 4, Hosea 9.10, as well as many scriptures in the New Testament. 
So it could mean that the generation that sees Israel become a nation will see the kingdom of God come. Now, if that's the interpretation, that certainly puts us in exciting times, doesn't it? Even at face value, if you take, say, well, you know, that's a stretch. Okay, there's biblical uh, support for that. But even if you just take what he said at face value, if the, the generation that sees these events happening that we spoke about two weeks ago, will see the kingdom of God come. Two weeks ago, we spoke about the times that we're living in, that these events are happening more and more, and they couldn't have happened but 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So no matter how you look at it, it still puts us in exciting times, doesn't it? Israel has always been central to Bible prophecy. God made eternal promises to her that have never been rescinded, and some of them haven't been fulfilled yet. And we know that God always keeps his promises. What kind of God would he be if he didn't keep his promises? Uh, this is why I don't believe in replacement theology, and let me explain what that means. That means that, unfortunately, it's starting to gain momentum in, uh, I guess, modern Christianity, that God has cast off Israel forever, and the church is now replacing Israel. He's done with them, never to deal with them again, but we now are the new Israel, so to speak. And I, don't, I have a problem with that because in our own New Testament, in Romans 11, Rabbi Paul says that the unbelief of Israel is only for a time. It's only for a season. And as Gentiles, we've been grafted into the, the olive tree. Uh, and God will use his people again. And Israel, or replacement theology, also confuses end times prophecy. Because if you believe that we've replaced Israel and God's done with them, when you look at Matthew 24 and you look at the book of Revelation when it speaks about the elect, which can be an ambiguous term, people say, well, that can't be Israel because of our biases. It has to be the church, and it confuses the rapture, it confuses the 70th week of Daniel, and it just doesn't work. Israel budding and bearing fruit, well, I think the biggest way that that happened is in 1948, when Israel became a nation again. She was restored. All the people, the Jews were gathered back into the land, and she was given a charter again to become a nation in 1948. If you really study the uh, history of Israel, you find out that she is a miracle nation. The fact that she exists alone is a miracle. Three years after the, uh, the, the stopping of the Holocaust, three years, she became a nation. After six million Jews were killed by the Nazi regime, Israel became a nation. So that's a miracle in itself. In 1967, after the Six-Day War, uh, she also regained biblical Jerusalem, which made her whole. Why is that important? Well, if you look, if you're taking notes again, Jeremiah 30, chapters 30 and chapters 31, especially chapter 31, I'm sorry, yes, 30 and 31, and Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, especially chapter 37, the, uh, the vision of the sticks, the two sticks, shows that Israel would be regathered in the future. Remember, this book was written, Ezekiel, 2,500 years ago, that Israel would be gathered back as a nation and regained as one nation, not as two. Remember, Israel, when she was decimated by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., she was divided into two nations. In 1948, she became one nation. It's very important. So 1967 was a really good year. I mean, you know, after the Six-Day War, she was victorious. She, she didn't get decimated. In 1967, she regained biblical Jerusalem. It was a good year. Coincidentally, I was born in 1967. <laughs> I want to see if you're awake. 
So this is, this is, this is pretty good stuff here. Uh, and Ezekiel 37 is also the vision of the dry bones. God takes Ezekiel into a valley of dry bones, a graveyard, human remains, just bones scattered around. And he says to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? From his perspective, he probably thought, no way. But he said, you know, Lord. So the Lord showed him how he put the bones together with the ligaments and then the muscles that wrapped around it and then the skin and everything together and made people and made a great army out of it. It was a picture of Israel coming together from nothing. Prior to 1948, they were. Where were they? Nowhere for almost 2,000 years and bringing them back to life again. So it's, it's pretty good. Also, many Old Testament scriptures speak of the migration back to Israel. Ezekiel 39 27 through 28 speaks about that. And Jews for Jesus does a great job of giving you the statistics on the emigration patterns of Jews in all the countries around the world, out of those countries, and back into Israel. I believe the figures were, in 1948, it was 800,000 residents in Israel, and now there's close to 7 million. So it's pretty amazing. So in verse 32, the, the, gen the generation that sees these events we'll see the day of the Lord in a sense, the coming kingdom. Now in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, Zechariah 14, the day of the Lord was murky. You know, it was, it was cloudy. The Old Testament prophets put pieces together, but they didn't see the whole picture. Now we see the whole picture, starting with the rapture to the second coming to the established kingdom on earth. Now, uh, it's very important that, again, nobody can set dates. The Bible says to look out for events, but the Bible strictly forbids trying to set dates. People have done it in the past, and we're still here. So it's kind of a foolish venture. What's, what's also amazing is the fact that the, there's forces aligning around the, the world at this point in time that really point to the end times. There was a book written by a Jewish believer, Joel Rosenberg, called Epicenter, that I just finished. I devoured the book in like two or three days. It was a great book. But it's amazing because Jewish believers in Jesus, when they write these books and prophetic books, you really get an interesting flavor uh, because they, they know their Old Testament. It's pretty amazing. I just want to read two portions from the book just to show you what type of exciting times we live in. He talks about a statement picked up by the Associated Press in April of 2006 where Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad announced, quote, like it or not, the Zionist regime is heading toward annihilation. The Zionist regime is a rotten, dried tree that will be eliminated by one storm, end quote, which is very curious because two things. Number one, uh, his eschatology is off. We're really looking in the scriptures where Israel has become a fruitful tree, and he's looking at it in the reverse. Uh, unfortunately for him, he's going to be on the receiving end of judgment. And the second thing is he speaks about this storm. If you, if you turn to Ezekiel 38, 9, it speaks about this great war against Israel that will come upon her like a storm. The other portion uh, in the book on page 233 is where he picks up an article from the U.S. News and World Report in January of 2006 where Mort Zuckerman writes an article called Moscow's Mad Gamble. And he speaks about how uh, Russia has become part of the problem, not the solution. Why? Because Russia is selling uh, nuclear power plants and nuclear technology to Iran and has become an inextricable link to Iran's fate. 
One, he says that one American diplomat told Zuckerman that this Russian-Iranian nuclear business is a giant hook in Russia's jaw, which is, for those of you who know the Bible well, in Ezekiel 38.4, it speaks about uh, the hooks put into Russia's jaw and leading her into this great battle against Israel. So what it also speaks about is how Russia will be led to this battle with Iran and a whole company of other nations against Israel in the last days. Now, if you know your history, you can find that in the last 2,500 years, going all the way back to Ezekiel's prophecy, Russia and Iran have never had such an alliance as they have recently. As a matter of fact, oftentimes they were at odds with each other. Now, this isn't a picture of doom and gloom because it puts us in exciting times. Times where we see that very soon Israel will have no one to defend her except the Lord himself. And he'll come down and rescue her. It'll be supernatural. It won't be that the big brother, the United States, will be uh, bailing her out. But it'll be a miracle. It'll be the Lord himself. And everyone will have to attribute it to him. So it's exciting to see Israel, a baby nation of only 58 years old, bear fruit. Develop a strong military, as, as Ezekiel 37 speaks about when the uh, valley of the dry bones all come together into people and God breathes life into them. And he says they, become a, they have become a great army. So we see this thing literally fulfilled in 1948. As soon as they get their charter, they're fending off attacks from uh, nations using Soviet equipment, Soviet tanks, Soviet missiles, all surrounding Israel, converging on her, several nations. And uh, the first year that they get developed as a nation, their military is able to defeat the onslaught. We also saw it in 1967 in the Six Days War, same situation, uh, insurmountable odds, and uh, Israel was able to fend that off also, and also in 1973 with the Yom Kippur War. What's also interesting for those of you who know history is that uh, both in the, the Johnson administration and another time in the Nixon administration uh, that these attacks against Israel with Russia really supporting these nations, attacking her, almost led to a nuclear conflict twice in history. And this can be easily verified through uh, information that's been debriefed and declassified. Now, what's interesting is, uh, too, is Isaiah 27.6 says this. Those who, those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Well, this is good because what we see now is if you log on to the Israel Export Institute, you see that Israel is in the top three of nations that export fruit and flowers. That's pretty astounding if you think about that area. So this scripture has literally come true. And Israel has a great export of computers, industrial oil, diamonds, fertilizers, tourism, and yes, they found oil under Israel, crude oil. And there's a lot of Old Testament scriptures that talk about the great treasures underneath of Israel that only now are we starting to realize these, these prophecies are coming true. Israel has a gross domestic product of $123 billion. As of 2005, it's much higher now. So what I'm getting to is that um, the, the exciting portion to see Israel bearing her fruit and also spiritually, the Hebrew prophet Zechariah in chapter 12 speaks of a national revival in Israel. 
So this is good. We see the temporal effects of, of the bearing of fruit, but we're also going to see the spiritual effects. We're going to see a national revival in Israel. Isaiah 60 through 62 speaks of prosperity that actually hasn't happened yet, that's yet to be fulfilled. God's people should always bear fruit. What is fruit? Fruit, yes, we know what fruit is literally, but fruit is also the spiritual manifestation of, as a result of having a relationship with God. It's an overflow. You ever meet somebody who's really mean and crabby, <laughs> and maybe somebody you work with, hopefully it's not you, you know, they're just really crabby, and they just put their coworkers in a, in, a, in a bad mood because of their attitude. But here, it's the converse. When you have a relationship with God, when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're just on fire for the Lord, you know? And you, you overflow onto other people. It's that filling of the Holy Spirit. It's that joy. It's that, hey, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I got a promise from God. And you start to spill over onto other people. Okay, there's that fruit that comes out in you. So the question is, have you been a Christian for a few years? Are you bearing fruit? What do you do with your spare time? That's a question that a lot of people don't really like to be asked. They think, well, I'm a good Christian. I go to church on Sunday. I write a check. I put it in the basket. I'm done. Don't bother me with my spare time. Well, Pastor Lloyd once said he could tell a lot of, about people by looking at their checkbook. And what he meant by that is if you allowed him to see your checkbook, he could see where you write your checks to. A down payment on an SUV for me, uh, new clothes for me, spending shopping spree for me, uh, big screen TV for me. You know, what does that say about me? I'm, it's all about me. I actually went on a call once and I walked into someone's house and I saw they had a TV. It had to be six, and I'm not exaggerating, it had to be six foot tall by like eight foot wide. And I'm looking at this thing. I'm supposed to be handling a, a dispute and I'm just marveling at this television. It was a little house, and the thing just filled up the whole world, the wall there. So, you know, it's, it's just all about me. What, what, what do I like? Now, I don't want you to, you know, get the wrong impression. I'm not trying to judge anybody here, and if you have a big TV, you can still invite me over. I won't say anything, I promise. <laughs> we'll watch Christian movies or something. But the point is, another checkbook, you could look at it and it says, you know, you're writing a check supporting missionaries. You're writing a check the homeless. You're writing a check, you know, and again, Lloyd's right. That checkbook can tell a lot about you. Well, let me take it a step further. Let's go a little deeper here. What do you do at your spare time? I ask you again. Think about it. Stop and think about how you spend your spare time. And people say, well, I don't have time. You know, I got this, I got that. Okay, let's take the 24-hour day, right? Take away the eight hours of sleep. You've got 16 hours left. Take away the eight hours of work. You've got eight hours left, okay? Take away, um, and then you have the weekend too. So then take away your devotional time with the Lord and your family time. You've still got some time in the day. Multiply that by five days and add the weekend. You've got a lot of spare time. I think a lot of our problem, and, and I run into this too, is time management skills. We dilly-dally a lot, right? We waste time. But a lot of time is also spent on ourselves. So I would ask the question, do you serve God with your spare time? Think about it. Do you serve others with your spare time? Or do you just spend your time on yourself? You just spend all day doing what you want to do. Now, this isn't a plug for the church. People serve outside the church. They serve in the prison ministry. They serve in the homeless ministry, uh, bringing 
there's people who take a bunch of clothes and Bibles in their spare time and go down to Trenton and give, you know, clothes to people that are cold in the winter and hand out the Word of God. They do that in their spare time. There's people that go on missions trips. There's people that are missionaries. There's people that go to the nursing homes. Well, there's not a whole lot of glory in that, right, for the world to see. But you know what? God sees. That's, that's an awesome ministry. These poor people who are elderly, and, you know, I'm sure they're thinking about eternity in some way or another. And I know people who go down to nursing homes. Or just the ministry behind the scenes. You don't have to give me an account. It's, it's not my business. It's you have to think about what I'm saying right now, and it's got to be in your heart, and thinking about between you and the Lord, because he sees. I look out, I see a bunch of wonderful people all smiling, waiting to hear the sermon. But God knows the heart, and God knows what we do with our spare time. I believe the true measure of a man or a woman of God is really not just their checkbook, but more importantly, how they spend their spare time. People think, again, they they write a check, they give it to church, they give it to an organization, and they're done. That's not where it ends. You know, when the Jewish law, in the Jewish law, right, in the Old Testament, you could owe somebody money, all right? And what you would do is you'd be sort of an indentured servant. You would work for that person. He would now be your master. Whatever he needed you to do, you would do until you worked off that money that you owed. Now, in the Jewish law, there was rules about uh, after the, the, the period was over and you paid back the money, or even if it was an exorbitant amount, of, uh, exorbitant amount, at some point in time, God's law would release you from being a slave to this person. Now, you had the option to, to say to the master, it's nice doing business with you, you know, I'm free, have a nice day, you go your way, I'll go my way. Or some of the people had the option, actually they all had the option to say, you know what, I really like this guy, we've developed a bond. It's not such a bad thing serving this guy. I, I want to serve him forever, voluntarily. What they would do then is they would take you to the witnesses, you'd take your ear against the doorpost, and they would take an awl and run it through your ear. Sort of like having a pierced ear, it would be a big hole. And that would signify your desire to stay with this master to us we think that's insane you know we got rid of slavery a long time ago that's abhorrent to us okay but these people voluntarily gave themselves to this master the point i'm trying to make is that we have a lot of freedoms in this country and freedom is good but freedom could be a double-edged sword sometimes it could be to our demise see In the Old Testament, people would give themselves to another human being, devote their lives to another human being. Today, God can't even get his own people to do something for him, to work with him. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? It's a cultural thing. In those cultures, they would give themselves to another person. In our culture, even people who are called by God's name, we don't want to give ourselves to God. And that's sad. Paul uses terms of, I'm a slave, I'm a bondservant, I'm a slave to the Lord. And that's, again, offensive to us. But, man, if we're going to be a slave to anybody, it should be to God, shouldn't it? So everyone who is a Christian should in some way be an example or being pouring themselves into others. The Bible says, let the older women teach the younger women. Jesus spoke about discipleship. As Christians, that's a big part of the equation. It's not just about activities. It's about Pouring yourself into another person. And that's difficult. You know why? Because you start to build bonds. And people need you sometimes, right? And people look up to you. And people have questions. And you develop those ties. But that's important. Without discipleship, what are we as Christians? Without 
getting our, our Lord's lead and watching how he did it. Jesus said, I came, I came to serve, not to be served. And we're supposed to take that lead, discipleship. It's very important. So think about that. Think about, if you've been a Christian for a while, think about praying about somebody that may come into your life that you should discipleship, you know, that you should disciple and spill over onto. Something to pray about. Just like with fruit, we talked about fruit, we talked about spiritual fruit. A piece of fruit, it's one piece of fruit. When you open it up, there's many seeds. Pomegranate seeds, or pomegranates have so many seeds. But, you know, just like with a fruit, you open it up, the seeds come out, and there's the ability to make many different plants from that one fruit. It's the same thing with us, with spiritual fruit as Christians. With, with some fruit that we bear, if we're doing it right, we can have an exponential effect on the world, couldn't we? Verse 33, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Well, in Revelation 21, God makes a new heaven and a new earth. This stuff is gone. Okay, we're to live with him forever, but this is a fallen creation. You know, it, it goes away and he creates a new heaven and a new earth. But even with that, God's word and his precepts are eternal. They don't pass away. The Bible says in Malachi 3.6, God says, I am God. I do not change. Hebrews 13.8, it says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is always consistent. His promises always come true. And his word is always appropriate. The word of God. Unfortunately, many treat the Ten Commandments in our society as if they were ten suggestions or if they somehow had an expiration date on them. Or as if God was having a bad day when he gave the law to Moses and he's over it now and he found his happy place and we don't have to obey it anymore. I mean, that's not what it's about. God's word is eternal. They, they have them, um, again, there's this big push, this big movement to take away the Ten Commandments from, I mean, they already did it with the schools. Now they want to take it out of our court buildings. They've gone so far that some of the old court buildings have the Ten Commandments engraved in them. They've gone so far as to put sheets over the Ten Commandments because people might be offended by don't kill, don't murder, don't steal, all right? Uh, or they, they plaster over it and they try to erase history. But God's word is eternal. No matter how many people try to fight against it and kick against the goads, God's word is eternal. It's still wrong to murder, it's still wrong to steal, and it's still wrong to lie about someone else and ruin their reputation. But the good news is this. With the same consistent attitude God has regarding his word, he has the same consistent love for us for eternity. This is a message of hope for those who are in Christ. Again, you choose the terms on how you face God. He's a God of justice, he's a God of love, and he can be both. You choose the terms. If you rebel against him, if you rebel against his way of salvation, you're going to face the God of judgment. If you, if you want to call him your daddy, Abba, Father, hop up on his lap, give him a big hug, you can do that. Uh, receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's what he provided to erase our sins. The payment of sins is, 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 is paid in full, the penalty. And you know what? We ha now have peace with God, Romans 5 tells us. I visited a woman um, during the week. Shari and I, Shari met me there. Uh, we, we visited a, an elderly woman who's going to die soon. I prayed for her in the beginning of the service. Uh, when we, you know, you don't know what you're going to expect when you walk in. She's on oxygen, uh, she's in a bed, and she had the appearance of being terrified and restless, very restless. Um, 
She had a hopeless religiosity that she was indoctrinated in. They discouraged reading the Bible, and she was scared because she didn't know anything. She didn't really know much about God. She really didn't know what he wanted from her. She didn't know where she was going to go when she died. But the cool thing is we prayed for her, and we gave her a Bible, and we talked to her about the Lord, read some scripture to her, and we gave her a message of hope, of love, and of comfort. And little by little, she smiled. You know, the, the countenance changed when some of it started sinking in to her. Now, I think about that in, contra- in contrast to a dear friend of mine who mentored me as a, a new believer. And uh, I remember him the night that he died. I was there as well as many other Christians in the hospital. And uh, the guy was amazing. He was a strong believer in Jesus. Even in the end, when he knew he was going to die, he actually died that night. He knew that he was going to die. But he knew that he was in Christ that his Lord Jesus Christ um, promised him eternal life. And I remember in the hospital, the nurse was trying to help him, trying to aspirate him, trying to make him comfortable, and trying to, I don't know, maybe prolong his life in a sense, but I still remember it to this day. I remember where I was standing, I remember what side of the bed I was on, and I remember him raising his hand like, you know, leave me be. And in a gesture of, I'm going home to be with my Lord. I don't need that stuff. Stop it, please. So... There's a big difference between somebody that you know who's going to die and they're in Christ versus somebody that is going to die and they don't know Christ. Huge difference. Verse 34. Jesus said, But take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. That day, the Greek word hemera, or time period, That day of the Lord spoken of in the Old Testament will have one or two effects depending on if you're in Christ or if you're not in Christ. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Paul says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other the aroma of life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Paul was speaking about the fragrance of Christ. Look at this in light of the backdrop of what was going on in the Roman Empire at the time. What the Romans would do is the Romans would have victory parades. If the Romans came into your territory, uh, they would would attack, they would subjugate you, and they would take the able-bodied people and bind them and bring them home as slaves. There was a, a statistic that said half of the Roman Empire at one point was in slavery. So they would bring you, they would have their victory parades, their generals would have their 
their, uh, their standards and they would be in full battle gear and they'd have their chariots and they'd go through the city and they would parade the, through the city. And they would have their priests. Their, uh, their priests would have incense censers and they would go like this with the censers and fill the air with this smell, this incense. And behind them was the people who were in bondage. You know, the ones, the spoils of war. They would be there behind and they would, they would have their hands bound and they would go through the streets bound. Not a good day for them. But the fragrance that came out of the censers to the generals and to the Roman people, that was the smell of victory. We won. But to the slaves, that was the smell of death. We lost. They lost their homes. They lost their families. And they could possibly lose their lives at some point. Same smell, same fragrance, different effect. And that's what happens here. Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, could be a good thing if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, it's not a good thing. And the good news is everybody can be in Christ. It's not an exclusive thing. It's not an exclusive club that we have here. Everyone can make that choice to be in Christ. So to those in Christ, they will escape the hour of tribulation that will come upon the whole earth. Revelation 3.10, counted worthy to escape his sacrifice, counted worthy to escape via his sacrifice and to those not in Christ will be judged as there remains no sacrifice in the order of Leviticus 17:11, which was never rescinded by the way the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you to put upon the altar to make atonement for your souls starting with the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament and ending with the sacrifice of Christ the final sacrifice for our sins carousing drunkenness, cares of this life, Jesus speaks about. It reminds me of the parable of the sower. Remember the parable of the sower Jesus spoke about? The seed is the word of God. Depending on whose heart it falls on, if their heart is prepared, it will grow and it will flourish. Well, there was one particular soil where the seed actually started to grow and it started to come up in a shoot and become, it appeared to be fruitful. But Jesus said the thorns also grew next to it. And as the, the thorns grew, they choked the seed and made it, made it unfruitful and, and strangled it. Okay? And that is a picture of what he's talking about here, the distractions of life. Always is an excuse of why not. Always an excuse of why I can't, you know, the thing with God, you know, it's coming, but not right now. There's, there's something else I've got to do. Or um, just there's always an excuse why, I would, why I'm not going to come to God, why I'm not going to let, let the word uh, take it, its root in my heart. Distractions. The question is, for us Christians, what is keeping you from serving God? Now, if I say that, some of you in your minds will have a picture of something that's holding you up. What is keeping you from serving God? What's the holdup? What are the things that we have to do first? Some people make so many excuses, it's almost like if the planets in our solar system line up just right, I'll be ready. <laughs> so when that happens, let me know. But it's, it's typical self-centeredness on our part. Um, I remember, you know, Jesse was up here. We prayed for him. I remember when I was at his age, and my life was all about me and what I could do to make me happy. I tried all kinds of things to make me happy for years and years and years. And you know what I found out? I wasn't happy. It was only until I yielded myself to Jesus Christ and uh, had that experience and started reading the Word of God did I realize what true happiness was all about. The more you try to do for yourself, the more you try to gorge yourself and, and overindulge yourself, the more unhappy you're going to be. Look at Hollywood. They, and, you know, picking on Hollywood, but they, 
they think it's funny or they, they talk regularly that, that the stars have two or three psychiatrists, you know. They have their plastic surgeons. They have their mansions. They have, uh, and some of them, I think they feel guilty. So they go to Africa or another country and spend some money there. It's like a catharsis. You know, they want to make themselves feel good. But these people are, you've you got to pray for them. It's a self-centered way of life. They're very unhappy people because they're focused on themselves. Too many, of, um, too many want the promise of eternal life, but also want everything the world has to offer. Many are not watching, and many are not being sober-minded, but spiritually lazy and covering with excuses. But for some, it may be a fear of the unknown. What does God want from me? You know, you know what, Joe? This stuff makes sense. This word of God, it's starting to do something in my heart. You know, what does God want from me? I'm a little fearful. Well, don't be fearful, because God is good. I can assure you that the guy who was up here going to Mexico, we're not holding him at gunpoint to make him go there. Some people are afraid when they're going to become Christians that God's going to make them missionaries. Well, I'm not a missionary, and you know, God hasn't put it on my heart to be one yet, but whatever, your, whatever God has designed in your heart, whatever spiritual gifts he's given you, he will hone them, and you will do something that you like doing. God's not going to make you do something that you hate doing. He's just not. For some, uh, people don't come to God because of bad representation. And you know what? It is very often that God's people, people called by God's name, give him a black eye in his reputation. It's a poor representation. Um, That's why when Moses was told the first time to strike the rock for the water to come out, and the second time he he was supposed to speak to the rock to have the water come out, the second time, instead of speaking to the rock, he took his stick and he was angry and he struck the rock again. And God did not let Moses come into the promised land because he poorly represented God. He made, Moses made the people think that God was angry at them at that point and he wasn't. So representation, you know what? Let those people deal with God. But you come to the Lord because God is good. You come to the Lord because God loves you. You come to the Lord because God is drawing you. Don't worry about the Christian you work with who's a hypocrite. He's got his own problems. God will deal with him. (laughs) You know, he will deal with them. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You come to the Lord because you know it's the right thing to do. Because when we all stand before God, it's on an individual basis. We can't stand before God and look at the hypocrite there and say, well, you know what, Lord, I didn't do it because of him. Now can I have another chance? It doesn't work like that. Verse 36. So the only way out of this time period, he talks about escaping. Um, the only way out of this time period in which the whole world will be judged is through the blood of Christ. And there's, there's themes here in the scripture that are repeated. Just like the only way to escape the last plague in Egypt for the firstborn to be killed was through the blood of the lamb, which was a type of Christ. Just like the only way to have their sins atoned for in the Old Testament was the sprinkling of the blood of the innocent lamb on the mercy seat. Okay, they're all pictures of Jesus who fulfilled all these types. And in verse 37 it says, I've got to read this again, because it really sums it up. It says, in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Jesus can count the hours, the hours to his crucifixion at this point in time that I'm reading to you. It's just a matter of time. I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, don't bother me. I'm really stressed right now. You know, he can count the hours. And what is he doing? Is he complaining? Is he, is he uh, just 
take, trying to rub, take care of himself. Oh, guys, come around me. No. What is he doing? Well, he's not thinking of himself. He's teaching. And he's loving the people until the time that he's taken away. It's funny. We read these scriptures and, oh, that's just historical. No, there's a lot in here. What, what, what's most important is what he's not doing. He's not focusing on himself. So Jesus is the best example in history of what it means to be others-centered and not self-centered. Jesus is the best example in history of what it means to be sober-minded about the things of God and not distracted. Lesson from the fig tree. The fig tree senses warm weather, change of seasons, and responds by blossoming and budding. And by seeing the changes in the fig tree, we know that there is a change in climate coming. However, God has ingrained a genetic code in these plants and these trees. So that, you know what? They don't have a choice. They do these things naturally. They just do it automatically, right? But we as humans are different. We're different from the rest of the animal kingdom. Why? Because God has given us a choice to see his prompts throughout history and to respond accordingly. So we can choose to follow him or we can stubbornly rebel against him till the day that we die and be left with nothing but a hopeless eternity. The choice, again, is always ours. Let's pray. There's a change in climate coming. 